great to see you all here. I'm going to start with a, a quote and just see if you can guess who said this who, who said this quote. Okay, so this is the quote. At the end of the day, if there was indeed some body or presence standing there to judge me, I hope I would be judged on whether I had lived a true life, not on whether I believed in a certain book or whether I'd been baptised. Anybody got any idea who might have said that? Just shout it out if you think you know. Sorry? I did just then. Yeah, thank you, Ben. There's always one. Any ideas... Any ideas who, who said that first, before I did? No? Good, good idea, Stephen? No, no, good idea? No, not what you I, I'm going to tell you because of, because of time. That was said by the cyclist Lance Armstrong. Um, and there's more than an edge of irony. Uh, if you know anything about Lance Armstrong, you will know that actually since, since he said that, um, he's been exposed as being somewhat less than true, somewhat less than... Perfect. In fact, he's been exposed as a liar and a cheat and a bully and a fraud. The thing is, though, is I think that actually reflects the way a lot of people think. I think a lot of people think in the same way as is exposed in that quote. As long as I live a good life, as long as I live a true life, then I'll be okay. But, of course, the question is, what is good? What, what is, how do you define good? What is good enough? You see, there are two major and opposing narratives, two opposing storylines that we have in our world. One is the biblical storyline, and that goes like this, that God created the world. So everything we have, God created the world, and when he created it, it was good. But humans rebelled, and humans corrupted the world and are deserving of God's judgment. And there's the problem of evil in the world, and the solution comes from God himself through Jesus Christ. And in this, in this storyline, this results eventually in a new creation where peace and justice will be restored. That's the biblical storyline. But then you also have the secular storyline, which seeks to take God out of the equation by taking away any idea of creation or, or design. Um, it doesn't acknowledge that there's any inherent moral problem of evil in the world. There are just some bad people and there are some good people. And this storyline, it looks not to God, but it looks to the ongoing improvement of self-improvement of humanity. So basically, you've got, you've got one uh, storyline that places all our hopes in God to rescue us, and then you've got the other storyline which places all our hopes in humanity rescuing itself. And I think it's hard to avoid the conclusion that we are in need of some sort of rescue, or that there's something fundamentally wrong with our world. You just have to look at the news, and often at our own lives and our own attitudes. But the question really is, which storyline do you ultimately follow? Where is your hope? Where do you place your hope? Is it in God or is it in man? So here's another couple of quotes for you. I'm, um, I'm not going to ask you to guess this time. This first quote comes from H.G. Wells, and he's, uh, he, he said this in, or he wrote this in 1937, and it's a very optimistic view of mankind. He says, can we doubt that presently our race will more than realize our boldest imaginations, that it will achieve unity and peace, and that our children will live in a world made more splendid and lovely than any palace or garden that we know, going on from strength to strength in an ever-widening circle of achievement. What man has done forms but the prelude to the things that man has yet to do. Very optimistic view, perspective of mankind and the prospects for mankind, and the only way is up, we're going to get all, these, all this sorted, we're just advancing and improving. 
Now, this is H.G. Wells in 1946, after the Second World War. The cold-blooded massacres of the defenseless, the return of deliberate and organized torture, mental torment and fear to a world from which such things had seemed well-nigh banished has come near to breaking my spirit altogether. Homo sapiens, as he has been pleased to call himself, is played out. That's an altogether different perspective from the same man. It's an altogether more uh, depressing view of the prospects for humanity. But the thing is, I think history has shown time and time and time again that to put all our hope in human progress and human goodness is just foolishness. It doesn't mean we shouldn't try, that we shouldn't try to make the world better, we shouldn't try to be better ourselves and solve all our problems. Of course we should. But to put our hope in human progress and human goodness is foolishness because we're all aware, I think, actually the problem lies within us. It lies within all of us. Now, the biblical story tells us to do something very different. It tells us to do the opposite of that. It tells us to recognize our own inadequacies. It tells us to recognize that the problem lies in us and turn instead to the creator for help, not to look for the solution within ourselves. It offers a different kind of hope. And actually, that is the kind of hope that you've just heard and seen displayed in those who have just been baptized and you will see again and hear again in those who are going to be baptized after this. It's a different kind of hope that the Bible offers. And uh, we read about it in 1 Peter 1, verse 3. So this is a letter that Peter wrote, the Apostle Peter wrote in the New Testament. And he says this, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope. A living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Okay, so what is this living hope then? What does he mean, living hope, and, and how do you get it? But actually, first, why do we need it? Why do we need hope? Well, we need hope because, as I'm sure we're all very much aware, life doesn't always run smoothly. It doesn't always go as we'd like it to go. Peter's writing this letter to Christians who are really going through the mill. They are they're suffering badly, they're being persecuted, and they need this hope to cling on to, this living hope to, to grasp hold of, to get through this time of suffering. But the reality is, for all of us here, regardless of faith, regardless of background, regardless of culture, we know that some sort of suffering and sorrow is just an inevitable part of of life. It is inescapable because things in life do go wrong. Sometimes it's small things that go wrong, but sometimes it's big things that go wrong. We get into a financial mess, or uh, we, we have health issues, serious health issues, or we face the fact that uh, a loved one has passed away. Terrible, horrible things that happen in life. And it's in those times that we really need hope. Now, there's a man called Viktor Frankl who was a Jewish. Uh, an Austrian Jewish psychotherapist who survived the Holocaust. He survived Auschwitz. And um, he observed, and he later wrote down, four main ways that he saw people responding to the unimaginable suffering that they went through in those concentration camps. And he said one response he saw was that some just became brutal. Some people, even some of the nicest people, the most gentle people, became cruel and brutal, and they would trample on anybody just to survive. It was survival at any cost. He said a different response he saw in others, though, was that some just gave up. They, they refused to get dressed, they refused to wash, they refused to go out on parade. In spite of the punishments, the beatings that would be handed out, they just gave up. Even some of the most optimistic people, they responded to that suffering by giving up. He said there were some who held on for some future hope. 
So if I can just survive, then I will get all my hopes back. If I can just stay alive, if I can get through this, and all those things I hoped in before, I will get back. They will be restored. My health, my family, my wealth, my position in society, my achievements. I've just got to get through this, and then I'll have all those things back. Of course, the reality turned out very differently, because it turns out that no amount of earthly Happiness or fulfillment or satisfaction could possibly compensate for the depth of suffering that they had gone through. And so that sense of meaning didn't return. And of course, being unprepared for that disillusionment led many to depression and to suicide. But then he said a final response he noticed. A few people were able to keep a sense of inner liberty in spite of being in captivity. They had an inner strength that somehow raised them above their outward fate. It raised them above their outward circumstances. And it was where they had a hope that suffering and death couldn't touch, that suffering and death couldn't destroy. It was where they had a hope that was far greater than the things of this world. Whether that was God, for some of them, or the idea of a friend or a family member or a spouse who had passed away looking down on them from heaven and not wanting to disappoint them. It was a hope that was greater. It went beyond this world. Now, suffering exposes the weaknesses in the things that we put our hope in, the things that we're living for. So what is it that you live for? What are you living for? Is there something about which you say, if I could just have that, then I would be happy, then I would be fulfilled, then I would be satisfied. If I could just have that, well, that, whatever that is, that is what you worship. That is what you put your hope in. That is your ultimate hope. It's what you're living for. And if we make any finite and changeable thing our living hope, whether that's health or wealth or family or position or achievements, none of which are bad things in themselves, but if we make any of those things into our ultimate hope, if we take good things and turn them into ultimate things, then suffering is when those things get stripped away. And we might become brutal or cynical or disillusioned, or we might just give up altogether. We need a living hope. A living hope is what the Bible talks about. One that doesn't die and one that doesn't change. See, if I make my wife my living hope or my ultimate hope, or she makes me her ultimate hope, we're in big trouble. One, because there are times when we let each other down. But two, because we won't be alive forever. Because the fact is, we're all dying and we don't know when that's going to happen. I just thought I'd throw that cheery uh, <laughs> little thought in there for you. We cannot put our ultimate hope in each other. Because what happens when it's gone? How do you fill that void when that is gone? Now we need an infinite reference point. A living and eternal hope to be able to handle suffering and sorrow when it inevitably comes along. To be able to handle life. Because the reality is if you live long enough, you will lose those things. They will be stripped away. You will lose your health. You will lose any wealth you may have because you can't take any of it with you. You will lose family. You will lose friends. So what is this living hope then? Well, Peter goes on to tell us a little bit more in verse 4. He says, you've been born into this living hope, but also into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you. This is an inheritance kept in heaven. That means it's guaranteed. It is utterly secure. It cannot be removed. It's kept but what is it? What is this inheritance? Well, on the cross, Jesus received everything that the human race deserves. And we know, we know that actually our record, the human record, is only deserving of condemnation and rejection from God. He got everything we deserve. But if you believe in him, 
The good news is that you get from God what he deserved. You get Jesus' record, the record that he deserved. And you get that credited to you. And as a result, you are reconciled to God for eternity. And that is the gospel. That's the good news. That you are born into this living hope. Not through your good deeds or through your achievements, but through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The only perfect, sinless man who ever lived, who offered himself up as a sacrifice on your behalf so that you could enjoy everything that he deserves for eternity. That is the inheritance that never perishes, spoils, or fades. That you will get everything that Jesus deserves. You will be surrounded and engulfed in God's love. You will know his delight over you. You will know his approval over you. And what's more, you can know those things right now in this life. You will live in glory for eternity and he will make you perfect. That is the inheritance. That is the gospel. It is very, very good news. Well, how do you get this living hope? Well, you get it by believing the gospel. It's quite simple, actually, in some ways. You get it by believing the gospel. That's what's happened to all the people, the ten people across these two meetings who are being baptized today. That's what's happened. They've believed the gospel. They've received Christ for themselves, and they've been born again into a living hope and into an eternal and a glorious inheritance. But more than that, this is not just something to look forward to in the future. This is for now. This makes a difference now. So John Piper says... A radical change in our desires and longings will mean a radical change in our personhood. Something new comes into being. When we cease to pin our hopes, our desires and longings on things that are in the world and instead pin our hopes and desires on God, then a new person has been born. A new person has been born. Well, does that mean that these guys getting baptized are from this point on going to live a life of sinless perfection? Does it mean they're going to live a life free from disappointments? Does it mean they're never going to turn their attention and put their hope in things other than God? No, it doesn't mean that. Because there's still brokenness in us and we live in a broken world. But their ultimate hope is in something infinite and unchanging and eternal. And that makes all the difference. It makes all the difference both now, in their lives now, and in the future. And today is like an anchor point in their lives. This is a significant, powerful moment and day in their lives, which will be an anchor point forever. It will always remind them of the ultimate hope that they have, of that living hope that they have. Believe the gospel and be born again. Believe the gospel and be born again. There's a big difference between people who try to be good and take a gamble on one day maybe being acceptable to God if there is a God. You know, that's the Lance Armstrong route, and it's fundamentally flawed. There's a big difference between that and people who know, absolutely know, that they are acceptable to God right now. Not on the basis of their own goodness, but on the basis of his goodness. On the basis of what Jesus has done. On the basis of inheriting his perfect record, and who live, changed lives right now in the light of of that. That's the difference between religion and the gospel. Okay? Religion is all about me saving myself. I give God my perfect record, my righteous record, and he owes me something now. The gospel is the opposite of that. The gospel is about knowing that your record will never be righteous enough. Your record will never be good enough. It's about receiving from God. It's about resting in God's work of salvation and knowing that he gives me a righteous record in Jesus Christ that I don't deserve one single bit so that I can live in freedom for him. These guys getting baptized today, they have believed the gospel. Their hope 
is not in finite things. Their hope is in the infinitely good and loving and eternal God. The question I'd just like to leave you with, though, is what about you? What about you? What do you believe? Where is your hope?